long as I can remember, I've been fascinated with disasters, what happened, why it happened, and what we can learn from them. As an anxious person, learning about these whys helps me feel more in control of my own safety. As an empath, I just want to know and tell the human stories behind these disasters. Who survived, who didn't, and most importantly, how they lived. I'm Jenny, the Disaster Queen, and I hate that disasters happen, but since they're gonna, I want to learn from them. Whether it's an act of God, act of man, or accident, I'll cover it all here. So I hope you'll buckle up real tight and come along for the ride with me. This is the Disaster Queen Podcast. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Disaster Queen Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me once again. I love recounting these terrible stories with you every two weeks. And today I have a special, special, special treat for you. It's one of my lifelong friends as a guest. I know you guys love it when I have guests on here. So I want to introduce to you my friend, Lori Ann Halton. Lori, welcome to the show. Oh, goodness. I'm in trouble. She used my middle name. Hi, guys. Thanks for listening. <laughs> you know, I we we use our middle names in our relationship as a term of endearment or scolding, but True this story. time it's endearment. So Lori and I met in Sunday school, probably in the three-year-old class, I think. Yep. I so think I, so. I actually do not remember a time without Lori in my life. Shout out to church friends. Shout out to Mr. and Mrs. Saul, the best Sunday school teachers ever. Oh, yes. <laughs> and breaking up the arguments that we used to have in our classes. I remember those as well. We and shout out to our parents for also being very good friends all through these many, many years. That's true. Our parents facilitated our friendship uh, by being friends themselves, which I appreciate. So yep. we have we have known each other these over 40 years we are so old we i was just old. thinking about lori that like i believe your oldest child is now older than you were when you birthed her is this that is a true story that, that is, is a very true story bonkers 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 mm -hmm. so lori is a wife a mom of three girls a professional and one of my best friends and i love having um friends choose a disaster for me so lori will you tell us what disaster you chose for us to talk about today and why yeah, lifelong listener, longtime listener, first time caller. Um, <laughs> I reached out to Jenny because um, she's always asking for new disasters. And um, one of the things that affected me kind of indirectly was the flooding of Eastern Kentucky in 2022. My family is from Eastern Kentucky. We go down once a year for a family reunion, which is an amazing event and, and full of love and fun. And um, we had to put it on pause last year because the place where we usually stay was being used as temporary housing for those affected by the flood. Um, so as I was gearing up and getting ready to go to the reunion this year, that was still heavy on my mind because I wasn't sure what what it would be like to drive through those areas that were affected, would I encounter you know different routes because we traveled through a lot of the, the different towns that were affected as well. Um, so I happened to mention it to Jenny and she um, said, yeah, let's go ahead and research it. and take a look at and at what happened there here we are and it's unique uh for the podcast so far because it's the most recent disaster that yes. we've ever done so it happened in july 2022 and what county is your is it both your parents or just your mom from eastern kentucky just my mom and what just county? my mom um i don't know what the leslie county yeah maybe? leslie county i'm is, not sure yeah i'm not sure she grew up she and her family grew up in Hyden. Um, where we 
vacation for our reunion is Buckhorn Lake State Resort Park um, in nearby Buckhorn was also affected. Yeah, it was. I have some Buckhorn stats here in a minute. Um, so I, like Lori, my mother also hails from Eastern Kentucky. And fun <laughs> fact, they are re- our parents, our mothers are related like way, 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 <laughs> way back because everyone from Eastern Kentucky pretty much is, I think. But um, True story. My mom was born in Clay County in Manchester, and she moved to the area when she was about three years old. Did your mom grow up her whole life in Eastern Kentucky? She did not grow up in Eastern Kentucky. They bounced around a bit up to Dayton, over to London. Um, But that is always where her grandparents lived. Um, And we have always had family there until my, uh, one of my great uncles passed away several years ago. But um, a lot of the family, obviously none of the family is still there, but um, it's still, you know, sad when anything like that happens for, for a myriad of reasons. But knowing that this is where my family hails from. It, it made it a little bit more personal than other disasters that, that you've covered. Absolutely. My mom still goes back a couple times a year, at least mm-hmm. to Clay County where, and she left there when she was three years old, but they went back to visit her grandparents often and like her cousins yeah. that she grew up with a lot still live there. So yeah, we, we have deep roots there and it's a beautiful, beautiful area, but let's talk about it um, in general. So Let's give, let's give the listener a little background on Eastern Kentucky. <laughs> because yes, please. Like us, unlike us, they, they might not, they might not be, you know, have roots there. So um, the Eastern Kentucky coal field is 31 counties, which is almost an exact third of the state in land area, 33.1%, 13,370 square miles. So it's a very big area. And between 1950 and 1970 there was a massive 37 percent population decline as people like my grandparents and Lori's grandparents Mm -hmm. sought jobs elsewhere so my grandpa after he he was in world war ii he came home he married his sweetheart they had they had two kids and by 1950 they moved to dayton ohio for jobs and several of both my grandfather's siblings and my grandmother's siblings did as well um so is that kind of the story with your grandparents moved out for work or? Yeah, it was for work. My, my grandpa for a time was a coal miner actually down there as well. Oh, wow. Um, so he would, they would bounce around for d- just different jobs that they had um, and ended up up here um, painting houses, I think was his last career in career, if you call it that in Dayton. Okay. <laughs> so a lot of folks moved up to the, to the great state of Ohio. Um, and so the population suffered. Um, as Lori mentioned, coal mining, the region's economy is centered around the natural resources there. Mm -hmm. So coal, timber, natural gas, and oil. And there was a coal boom in the seventies and eighties, um, with strip mining. So then we had a population increase with about 26% coming back, but they needed new homes because the old homes that were there weren't livable. And there's always kind of been a housing shortage ever since then. Um, as a result, a lot of mobile homes went, uh, up. And this were on lands close to the strip mines, which were in floodplains near creeks and rivers. And strip mines, I learned a lot. I did not know this. They also, <laughs> I learned so much. I learned so much. I mean, I should probably get like a master's in history after doing all this. After like two years <laughs> of podcast, I think. Can I get some college credit? But strip mines um, make it so that the land cannot absorb 
moisture as well as it normally would. So that's going to play in to what we talk about. So um, the high ground was owned by the corporations. So nobody could build their houses on the high ground. So between the strip mining, um, messing up the land and the corporations owning the high ground, most people had to build their homes on floodplains. And a lot of them were mobile homes and single story dwellings. So that is gonna figure into what happens next. Um, and then after the coal boom from 1980 to 2021, there was another 20% decrease in population. And that's gonna bring us to kind of our next point about Eastern Kentucky is it is a, what the government terms a persistent, I'm using quotes here, persistent poverty region. Yes, yes. And I, and I know like my mom's parents both grew up really poor, even in, you know, yeah. they grew up during the Great Depression. So I guess everyone was poor, mm -hmm. but that's part of the reason they got out. I mean, my grandpa was literally born in a holler, you know, like mom yep. doesn't even know where it is. And um, yeah, um, I'm first generation indoor plumbing. My mom had an outhouse wow. as a kid. They, lived, they didn't even have a street. They lived on a creek. That's and bonkers. One family was on a creek and then they went over the mountain to the other creek where her grandma lived. So um, that's just how it was. And wow. I remember the stories that I hear of, of, of the shacks that they grew up in is, is pretty, pretty interesting. It's, it's gotta be, it's just, it blows our minds because our parents, you know, we, we both had a stable upbringing. Neither one of us were yeah. particularly rolling in it, but um, we did, we had indoor plumbing for sure. And a street. <laughs> True. Yes. There was I, pavement and plumbing. I remember when I was six years old, we went to visit my grandma's brother, my uncle, great uncle Paul. And he was a World War II vet who just never kind of did great after the war. He never married, never left Eastern Kentucky. And I was six years old. So this was like 1982, 83. And um, he had an outhouse. I had to get up in the middle of the night mm -hmm. and get my mom up to use his outhouse. So this was the 80s. Yeah. So it's definitely a different world from what a lot of us have grown up with. Um, the defi definition of persistent poverty or persistent poverty county this is from the Economic Research Service of the United States Department of Agriculture, um, is that 20% of more of the total county population has been living in poverty since the 1980 census. That's, mm -hmm. that's a long time. I mean, persistent poverty. So we're talking, you know, 45 years. Um, well, more than that, because we're older than 45, 50. Yes. <laughs> well, I'm older than 45. <laughs> <laughs> Lori loves that I was she's about younger to correct you. than I am. I am nine months younger than you, yes. <laughs> um, in the New York Times, there's a, I've heard of this before. I think it's like semi-famous among those of us with roots in Eastern Kentucky. There was a New York Times article in June 2014 that identified six counties in the Kentucky coal field as among the hardest places to live in the United States. And the, mm -hmm. some of the lowest ranking counties were counties affected by this flood and counties from which Lori and I hail, Breathitt County, Clay County, Jackson County, Lee County, Leslie County, and McGoffin County. And they those six ranked in the bottom 10 counties nationwide. Um, the factors for that ranking were unemployment, prevalence of disabilities, obesity, income, and education. And my mom's birthplace of Clay County, Kentucky, was declared the hardest place to live in the United States. So yep. what we're saying is these people who went through a catastrophic flood that we're about to tell you about already had it hard. 
and they already didn't have a lot. And I should have put a trigger warning for the pronunciation of the word rural because I'm going to say rural yes. a lot today. <laughs> How do you say rural, Lori? Rural. I, I even do it wrong, but rural. 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 Yeah. Anyway, yeah. it's so rural that like the infrastructure already wasn't great as well. And then it mostly got destroyed. So let's dive mm -hmm. into what actually happened, Lori. Um, it was July 27th and 28th, 2022. I'm going to hit you with some facts from the National Weather Service about this event. So this was... I know there was lots of rain. <laughs> She's on so it. So much rain. So much rain. So the, you know, a little rain never hurt nobody, but the the creeks and the rivers um, around this area just had so much more than they could handle. And a lot of folks, like Lori said, her mom didn't have a road. They lived on a creek. There's still many people in that situation. So the creek is your front yard. Yeah. They, the, there is now a street called Short Creek, I believe. There's pavement where, where she was, but, um, but there are still people that live on the banks of a creek. I read one quote that said, um, your front yard is a creek and your backyard is a mountainside. And they were talking about the danger yeah. from like landslides. Yeah. yeah. So it's crazy. So, okay, let's, let's talk about this. From July 26th through the 29th, there was a series of what they call training thunderstorms. I'm using my quotes again. That doesn't mean that the thunderstorms were in training to be a thunderstorm. It means that they came one after another, like a bunch of freight trains. I had never heard that term before, but that's the National Weather Service. Um, the rainfall totals observed between those dates across eastern Kentucky were over 600% of normal. Who can, what, I mean, what, I mean, there was just recently some flash floods in New York City, and I'm wondering what percent of normal that was. I mean, what, what land can handle 600% of normal in a three-day period? beats me be i'm not a meteorologist but it seems pretty impossible um and while most of the region was drier than normal going into july that amount of rain in such a short period of time would according to the national weather service overwhelm any area simply due to the very high rainfall rates so the national weather service agrees with what we just <laughs> surmised and here's where <laughs> here's where i got some buckhorn lakes lake stats for you so they have records dating back to 1961 and during this storm, they measured eight inches of rain in a 24-hour period at Buckhorn Lake, which beat the previous record of 1.8 inches at that site. That's a pretty wow. big jump. And so it's also the most rain the site has ever observed. And the four-day total at Buckhorn Lake was 11.76 inches, which is also a record for that amount of time. So that's that's a crazy amount of rain in that many days. And the, the estimated mm -hmm. peak for the whole area from the 26th through the 29th of july was 14 to 16 inches that's like noah's ark level that i mean it's insane um and that's less there's less it says than a one in 1000 chance of that amount of rain falling in any given year over a 40 period wow so this was that's super baffling. and it's super fascinating it's just super unlucky it's super unlikely like one of the things that I deal with with anxiety is like catastrophic thinking. Like I'm always going to the worst case scenario and I'm like, dang it. 
this was very unlikely and it still happened to these people. It's not doing wonders for me, but um, I live on high ground, so cross fingers, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> and not yeah. near a strip mine. And not near a strip mine. Nope. No strip mining here in the city streets. So yeah, one in a thousand chance of that amount of rain falling, 14 to 16 inches in four days. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Okay, so the real emergency happened on the night of July 27th through the early morning of the 28th. It was the worst thunderstorm continuing for several hours, and it occurred in the middle of the night, which is like worst case scenario because people were asleep. Um, a few years ago, we had a tornado here in Dayton um, around Lori's birthday, but Lori was in Columbus, so that's all good. Um, but my yeah. family and I were in my basement. <laughs> But it was like 1130 at night. So we had to get you know kids out of bed and bring them down to basement. And a lot of people were asleep and didn't hear the warnings. And the one there was only one fatality in that tornado, but it was an elderly man who was asleep in his bed. You know, so a middle of the night disaster is just compounding and making things even worse. So a lot of these people didn't get the warnings or they awoke to water literally rising up to the sides of their beds. And part of the reason they didn't get warnings in, a, in addition to middle of the night is another complication of it being such a rural area is the lack of broadband internet and spotty cell service out there in rural Eastern Kentucky. So that's another like deficiency um, that contributed to this disaster being super terrible. And I was reading up on that and it said it's going to take about four years to get that kind of coverage that they need out mm -hmm. there. So hopefully yeah. since we're not going to have another flood like that in a thousand years or one in a thousand chance, I don't know how many years that would be. Hopefully we're going to be okay um, with them getting the broadband out there, but that's just another like um, it's an inequity that contributed to this tragedy. So the waters rose so fast that there was zero time for people to save belongings and very little time for them to save themselves. Um, I read, I've got a few stories that I'll tell you, but a, a lot of them that I read, whether I included them or not, were people who were like, oh, I better get up and start putting stuff up, you know, up where it won't get spoiled yeah. high. And by the time they had two or three things put away, there was water up to their waist. And they were like, oh crap, I can't save anything. I gotta get out of here. So mm -hmm. it was just unprecedented how quickly it rose. Um, also, the current was extremely fast. It ripped houses off foundations. It set many trailer homes loose. And there's an IGA store that we will talk about in a minute where there's photos of this grocery store has those huge freezers that we all see in our grocery store. And the freezers were just like vastly displaced, thrown feet across the store and completely turned over on their fronts. So those freezers have got to weigh thousands of pounds. I just cannot imagine the the power of those floodwaters. And um, it's really scary. And this, what makes it so difficult is that people had so little time to get out. Right. I read a couple different, um, I don't know if you found a, a number, a couple different sources said that 45 people were killed. And I had another one that said 48, but the number that I saw most often was 45. Have you heard anything different? 
I have not heard anything different. The only discrepancy I would think would be like maybe they passed away after the fact due to injuries. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that's how they extend the numbers a little bit. But there, yeah, there was some that of that. Numbers, what I saw as well. Yeah, there was some of that in the final total that I saw. But forty-five people killed in a modern-day flood—that's a lot. Yeah, and this population is being rural. It's not a huge population, um, so it is that's a lot of people and it's extremely tragic um there were a lot of rescues as well there were over 600 helicopter rescues made and countless boat rescues there were challenges like we talked about just now discrepancies in how many people were lost their lives so the challenges of knowing how many were dead or missing at first um was because of the total destruction of as we discussed the already very limited infrastructure um you know roads bridges highways they had trouble getting to homes to check on people because what was already there was really washed out and there's not there's just not a lot of alternative routes can't take a lot of detours when there's not a lot of infrastructure to begin with so approximately 9,000 homes were damaged or totally destroyed and this is crazy when you think about we're talking about oh it's a rural area there's low population the cost of rebuilding is estimated at 450 to 950 million a $500 million gap, that seems crazy, but as I read on, I learned that the lower figure is to rebuild homes where they stood, and the larger figure is to rebuild homes on safer, higher ground. So I'm hoping that's what they're able to do, but, and I know there's been plenty of fundraising, but the federal government only sent 280 million of that, um, which is certainly helpful, but some of that is even funds that will need to be repaid. So it's not all just, free federal money and it's also perpetuating the economic strife that's already in the area absolutely these people um perfectly what you said was my next point the challenge to rebuilding is that in six of ten of the households whose home were destroyed have an annual income of thirty thousand dollars or less mm -hmm. the area already had a housing shortage and you know i'm sure plenty of people did not have flood insurance right not everybody has that and they'd certainly never had this bad of an event before um the counties that got the worst of it were breathitt letcher not and perry county but there were 13 counties total that were declared a disaster area by both kentucky governor andy Bashir and by president biden so a very large area very badly affected um and it's they are rebuilding but it's going to take Plenty of time we'll talk a little bit about rebuilding as we get there but some people just they're going to have to rely on the goodness and kindness of people reaching out to raise funds because they didn't have much to start with right. i mean when you lose everything and you didn't hardly have anything how are you supposed to rebuild it it's just very tragic i i know Lori and i both are familiar with a an organization here in dayton called shoes for the shoeless that typically brings shoes and socks to school children here in Dayton who need them but they did a big Eastern Kentucky relief drive and brought tons of like not only shoes and socks but like they collected you know hygiene products and underwear and clothing and just everything that people needed because people literally had nothing like meant most of the people who lost stuff lost the majority of their stuff and were yeah. lucky to get away with their lives so 
let's talk about some of the sad hard stories we'll talk about survivor stories too but i just want to honor some of the people it's impossible to go through all 45 victims but we'll talk about a couple and i think the one that a lot of people heard about i know i heard about the time was a family that lost four siblings have you heard about this no please share oh i'm sorry i'm gonna bum you out um Uh, yeah not that i'm excited for you to share it but i'm curious to know right and their story needs to be told um there was a, a there is a family called the noble family who lived in a little town of montgomery in knott county and the mom amber smith and the dad riley noble had four children and their house was quickly filling up with water they grabbed the kids and they their um, cousin told CNN, her name was Brittany Trejo, that they got on the roof of their house, but the entire underneath washed out from under them with them and their children. And they managed to somehow each holding on to a couple kids get to a tree and they held on to the children in the tree for a few hours. But then at one point, a huge tide came and washed all the children away at the same time. The mom and dad, Amber and Riley, were able to hold on to the tree for more than eight hours before they were rescued, but they lost all four of their children, Madison Noble, eight, Riley Jr., six, Nevaeh, four, and Chance, only one and a half years old. They all. Wow. I mean, how do you start as those parents? Like, how do you even, how do you even put one foot in front of the other? Don't cry. I'm going to cry if you Yeah, I'm about to. (laughs) it's terrible it's awful and and i just want to bring attention to it not to like be macabre or bum people out but it's their story needs to be told because this you know was obviously a huge natural disaster but like there are certain things that could have been in place if people cared more about poor people in our country that maybe would have you know helped a lot of people like the noble family out so the noble family is someone that I will be thinking about family that I will be thinking about often. So it wasn't just young families though. There's a lot of elderly who live out there, middle-aged, um, the next, um, this, Oh, this makes me so sad. So Diana Ambergy, who's 65 years old, she woke up one of those that I was told woke up to water surrounding her bed. Can you imagine the terror? That's insane. I'm not a very sound sleeper, but some people are, um, she woke up to water surrounding her bed in the dark of the night and she lived in Knott County and she called 911 and she was being told that emergency services were unable to reach her house. And because they were unable to reach her, she became another victim of the floods. Um, her daughter said she could not swim and she was found about five miles from her house near a Creek bank. Wow. I know. I hate that there was a record of her like calling 911 and like trying to save herself. It's just, it makes it so much more terrible our next um story of someone who lost their life is elizabeth combs she was 71 years old and she was a retired custodian and she and her husband adam combs who was 75 were at home with some of their relatives when the water started coming in and they lived in Knott county and they lived in a trailer home and as the waters rose um, they had some younger relatives who were able to get out and swim to a mountainside like we said you got creek in your front yard a mountain in your backyard um and one of them was able to help Adam swim out, but his body seized up and he had to go back into their home. And when he got back, the trailer broke free. Oh, I hate it. In the floodwaters, um, with, but with the couple inside. And their daughter, Lisa Campbell, said um, she told the Lexington Herald leader that 
the trailer, it went maybe a quarter of a mile down the road and landed in one of the bottoms there and they found them inside together. They had three children. I know, I know. They went together. Um, She said her mom loved being a mother more than anything and her dad was a proud disabled Vietnam vet. I know their family, sorry, I know their family must miss them so much and I know And I know that they are probably thrilled that they're looking down with happiness on the fact that some of their relatives were able to escape, but it's just, it's, and how traumatic for those younger relatives, you know, that they had to watch. I mean, let's think about all the PTSD this is going to cause. I mean, I hope that there's counseling services for the children, the children or young adults who had to like watch their parent or grandparents trailer break free and float down this massive faux ocean and they had to just watch helpless completely nothing you can do yeah it's just i really hope there's some good mental health services being offered to these survivors because this is super super traumatic and so we'll, we'll we'll just do one more story of some folks who passed away and like i said i would love to, i want to I, I hope you all read some of these sources because there's the lexington herald leader kentucky.com has a literal description of every single person who passed away and i read them all and i would encourage you to do too to do so as well i put it in the show notes because they they need to be honored um this is a mother and daughter who died together ruby cundiff 69 and her daughter nancy um Ruby was known for her cooking, they say, and she made big meals for family reunions. You know, those Eastern Kentucky family reunions, Lori. Mm -hmm. Um, She and her husband, Larry, um, had actually adopted Nancy as a foster child, and she was intellectually handicapped. Um, Her her brother, well, Ruby's brother-in-law, so Nancy's uncle, said she was just sweet. She was just as friendly as could be. She always had a big smile on her face. Um, when the floodwaters rose around their double wide trailer in Breathitt County, the pressure of the water prevented them from being able to open their door. Like, that's wow. a, I know that's another thing that like, I guess you hear about that in like, if your car goes into water, mm-hmm. but it had never, ever occurred to me like that, that it could happen at your house, at your house, like you can't get your front door open. So uh, Ruby's husband, Larry was in the house with them. And he broke through um, a window and got on the roof to try to get his family out, but they couldn't get to him. And the house began breaking apart so fast that they couldn't get to Larry. Um, One of their daughters, Mindy, was able to swim out and Larry held onto a tree until a neighbor could reach him. Um, But Ruby and Nancy were lost and it took them two days to find Ruby, but more than two months to find Nancy, which is Again, let's compound this tragedy and make it even worse. Trauma, trauma, trauma. I hate it. I hate it so much. I hate it. Do you hate it? I absolutely hate it. I'm so glad that you agree with me that this is terrible. (laughs) Okay, Lori, so we talked about some of the lives that were lost. Um, Let's move on to some incredible survivor stories so that we don't need to go take a brisk drink after we finish recording here. We'll start with Letcher County, Wallace Bowling Jr., who was the Letcher Fire Chief. He, when he heard about the floods, he went to the fire station in the small town of Jeremiah to try and, again, he's trying to save stuff. Like we said, people were trying to save stuff. 
but they just didn't have time. So he was trying to move some fire vehicles to avoid damage, but by the time he got to the station, the water was so high that he became trapped in his truck. And we, like we just talked about with the pressure of the water on the house, he couldn't get the window or the door open. So I'm not usually a firearms person, but Wallace had his trusty pistol with him. And in this case, it was a lifesaver. He shot the window out of his truck with his pistol, dove out into the water and climbed on top of a tanker that was parked right by where his truck ended up. And he stayed on top of that tanker for 15 hours until he was rescued. What are you thinking about while you're trapped on top of a tanker for 15 hours? I'm glad I'm not in the truck. Yeah, yeah. I guess you're just really thankful that you're there. Yeah, I mean, the tanker's a little, at least a little bit more solid, right? It's not going to probably float as easily as other fingers, vehicles. Yeah, hopefully it had lots of stuff in it. Nothing flammable, but something very heavy. I, I just think like, I mean, you've got to be doing like some kind of a huge life review when you're, you've just escaped death and you have like not nothing to do for 15 hours while you away rescue. So, and I'm also wondering as a you know, a, a person who is there to serve the community and he's stuck, you know, how, how would he feel in that way? Cause he's supposed to be out there helping others, but he can, he's literally trapped. So I would also think that, that that would be part of what he would be pondering as well. I'm sure it had to be super frustrating for him. Like he's a literal first responder. Yeah. And he ain't responding to nothing. Servant. Yeah. Cause exactly. he's stuck. Well, I'm glad he's here to respond to future emergencies. Um, so Wallace Bowling Jr., he he survived and we're thankful. Another survivor, this may be a very, this is a famous photo from the flood. I don't know if you've seen it. Chloe Adams, who was 17, there's a famous picture of her and her dog sitting on top of a roof. I don't know if you've seen it. I believe so. I've got an article linked in the show notes that you can look, but the thing about the picture that's so crazy is she they're on top of a roof, but the roof, there's barely any roof for them to sit on. Mm-hmm. It's, it's nuts. So she became kind of like a famous flood story because she, well, I'll just tell you, she was 17 years old. She woke up like many people to the sound of water rushing in her house. Um, she said it was coming out of the bathroom drains and up from under her kitchen tiles. And she was home alone. Her family lived like many families there, they all lived close together. So most of her family had been at another family's house, just real close by, but she was alone in her house. Um, she says she had a full blown panic attack. Um, the rest of her family was sheltering nearby on the second floor of her uncle's home and they could see and hear her. They kept calling out to her to stay put until help arrived, but she realized that there was no way she was going to make it until help arrived. So she put her dog in a plastic drawer that would float and swam with him to the roof of a neighboring home where she waited five hours for rescue, which finally came in the form of one of her cousins in a kayak and her family had to watch over her the whole time. Once again, in a helpless situation where you can only watch and pray. How awful would that be? Um, I'll encourage you guys to look at the photo. I will put it, I'll put it on my Instagram too, but there's just so little roof left for her and the dog and like that the dog mm-hmm. just like stayed still and was behaved <laughs> thank in god a little in a little crate little plastic um because yeah. that dog had to be scared too i mean they don't understand what's going on um 
But anyway, she was rescued by her cousin and her family's quote was, they lost everything, but they were so grateful to have their lives, which was truly what mattered. So I know a lot of people are in that situation. Um, but I'm just inspired by the fact that she was all alone and she got herself up and out. So praise God for that. Um, Chloe Adams, look it up. I'll, I'll post the, I'll post the picture on my Instagram, but I'll, it's in the show notes too. So just a very, I think it's going to be iconic. You know, there wasn't, like I said, there wasn't, this is the most recent, um, disaster we've done when they're doing the 10 year retrospect on this disaster on the news, that picture is going to be on there for sure. Absolutely. Okay, we got a couple more survivor stories, and then I know you actually talked to somebody who experienced this. So I want to hear that too. So we will we'll go through our survivors, and then I want to hear you tell your like interview sort of that you did. (laughs) Um, Okay, Mary and Arlen Gibson, they were from Pine Top, and they were also awakened by the sound of rushing water. This is a theme coming out of their bathroom. They got trapped, um, and this is interesting. They got trapped in their bedroom because the furniture started floating and like everything was blocking the doors and they couldn't move the furniture out of the way of the doors that's a new one so but they were able to escape through a bedroom window and they scrambled um through the water they swam up to a hill again mountainside in the backyard to where their neighbor was riding out the storm and he was actually in his truck so they got in the truck way well out of the water and stayed there for six hours until it was safe to come down so they had a traumatic experience was not as bad, not as bad as some, but I just, that's another scenario I never imagined. Like you can't get out of your bedroom door to even get to the front door of your house because all <laughs> your furniture is floating and blocked off your door. That's unimaginable to me. Unimaginable. So crazy. The last one is a mom and her two kids. Three, uh, her name is Jessica Willett and she was 34 and she saved her son Isaiah three and her daughter Novea 11 by tying them to her with a vacuum cleaner cord. She was like, what do I do? What do I do? She got some scissors. She cut the vacuum cord and they escaped out of a bedroom window and fought their way through the waters to where her father was waiting to save them with a truck about 50 feet away on higher ground. But before they got out of the house, she called her children's father and said, I've tied us together in case the worst happens, we'll be together. Wow. Can you imagine as a mother? I know as a mother making that plan and having that thought and calling someone to say i can see i wish people could see the look on your face right now (laughs) it is i love how ingenious it is to to try to keep everybody safe but it really did take a morbid turn when you put into to fact it's all going we're all going to be together and in that moment it 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 made me go back to the noble the noble family that you were talking about because if I lost all my kids, I don't know if I would want to hang on to that tree, to be honest with you. For sure. The the strength that they had, um, I think I would not, you don't pick sides in this situation, but I I absolutely get what this mom is saying um, with, I'm doing what I can and I will do everything I can to save my kids. But just in case, this is is what it's going to be like. Yeah, that was super, super powerful and hit home with me big time. Like she was like, she had the forethought to think like, it's going to be easier for everyone else if we're together. Mm-hmm. Help me, Lord. I can't hardly, I can't hardly entertain that thought. Ah. Um, okay. I would like you to go ahead and tell us what you learned at your recent family reunion. Yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, um, I know that this area was hit hard just because of, of, of what 
what I, you know, the towns that I drove through, they, they were affected and everything else. And um, I just happened to think, I wonder if we're going to run into anybody who, who was affected. And um, I went down to breakfast one, one morning and my dad said, oh, I was talking to a man up at the front desk. His name is Jason. We have interacted with him for years because we've always been going to the same place. And um, he said, Jason lost his house. And um, I really wanted to hear his story and I want his story heard. Um, and it was very tough to sit there and listen to him share, share, cause he still has so much pain. It's still so fresh. Um, he did lose his house. It did come off the foundation and it did float away. Um, they lost absolutely everything. Fortunately, they did have insurance and he is rebuilding a house now, um, hoping to be in there by December. So that is very good. They're currently staying, um, at a relative's house because that's just what you do. Um, this whole area is affected and, and they have all banded together to help others um, less fortunate that, than themselves, which is something you very much see in this community, which is, is refreshing to me. Um, but they're staying with relatives, currently fixing up the house, hoping to get in uh, before the snow flies. Um, but to his, you know, Jenny, you mentioned it earlier, the amount of, of time that they had was, was pretty, it was 15 minutes. He said, oh my gosh. by the time the water started rushing in and the house floating away, it was 15 minutes in the middle of the night. Um, things just happened so rapidly, so quickly that you really didn't have time to react. And he and his whole family are so grateful to still be here today um, because of how catastrophic it could have been by losing their house. Um, there was a, a link that I sent you about his daughter who um, lost a guitar and was able to find it in the local elementary school, which still continues to be closed to this day. They're currently busing children from Buckhorn, Kentucky to Hazard, Kentucky, which is a very long distance um, and, and not an easy trek um, from one location to the other. If you guys look it up on like Google Maps to see where those locations are. Um, but they were able to find it in the school building and, and get it back. So I don't know if you want to put that in the show notes also. With I will. That um, that was his daughter who, who who was able to get her her guitar back. That is amazing and amazing that the guitar is in such good shape. I Absolutely. I was I was gonna say when you said that they had had waiting waiting so long or they're rebuilding, but they're not even gonna probably get in until December. So that's a full year and a half since the flood. So I was wondering if his children were displaced for because i know after hurricane katrina tons of kids were displaced for school and you're mm -hmm. telling me a whole entire community of children are displaced for school mm -hmm. yeah the school's still not up so i asked well what are they doing are they where are they having school they're um having it in a probably it's I, I i'm from ohio so i i tell distance and time so it's probably <laughs> about an hour away um that's depending on what the trek is well i'm not wrong you know no, this. you're not wrong <laughs> that is but, um, so that is awful it is and me as someone who suffers from motion sickness in the mountains there's no way i could do that Ooh. on on a bus every day and just um, think about how much time that is that's just that you know that's a lot of time for the kids to be uh, away from home, not doing extracurricular activities, not doing homework. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. I hate that. I wonder how many schools were lost. That's something that I did not look up and I wish that I had now that you say that, but, um, maybe I'll, I'll look that up for my blog post about the episode. How about that? Okay, sounds good. Cause I want to know how many schools were lost and I want to know more about this displacement. Like we thought the pandemic was an interruption of education. This is 
this is that's bad these kids well Jeez once again me. thinking about the the area there's no broadband internet can be spotty cell service is spotty so can you even do remote learning in those in, in that environment right maybe maybe not right um, so this is the best solution that they had for for these children to continue their education wow that is that is bonkers i'm glad i'm really glad that you brought that up and that you learned about that so i'm definitely going to look into that more before i write the blog post um okay we're going to end with a fun super fun rebuilding story no it's not super fun the none of this is fun but i was inspired I don't know if you've ever heard of this website because I hadn't before I did the research, but there's a website about rural communities called the daily yonder. And it's really cool. Daily need to check this out. I will definitely put it in the show notes, dailyyonder.com. They had tons of great flood content and they also produced with the center for rural strategies, a documentary about the Eastern Kentucky flood. It's literally just called East Kentucky flood. It's on YouTube. I'll put it in the show notes as well but it heavily figured in the documentary and in an article on their site was a story about the isom iga and i mentioned earlier that their freezers just got ripped out of the wall and tossed around um but this little town of isom is in letcher county and it's not even in like an incorporated town it's just a little i don't know village you want to call it but the isom iga grocery store is the only um grocery store around for miles so it is you know without it they would have a real food desert and it was totally destroyed in the flood and the owner gwen Kristen, um could have made the choice to like take her insurance money and run but she decided to rebuild because she knows what a lifeline that the yeah the iga is for the community so gwen and her husband Arthur and her son Simon and daughter-in-law Cheyenne run it together. Gwen's actually kind of an inspiring lady boss because she worked at that grocery store since 1973, but she bought it um, eventually. 25 years ago, she bought oh. it. I know, right? When the owners were ready to sell. I love it. Um, and they, like, she's the owner, like, not her husband, you know, not her son, like, it's hers. But obviously, they run it together. So, um it also serves as like a town meeting place because they have a little deli where you can have coffee and it is the town's biggest employer. So rebuilding was super, super essential. It took nine months to rebuild and reopen. Can you imagine nine months without your grocery store? And Amazon's not delivering yeah. out there when there's no roads. It really is a food desert area. If you think about it, you know, I know sometimes there's little mom and pop stores like this, but like to go to a Walmart can be once again, distance and an hour and drive. Time. Yeah. 45 minute drive uh, yeah. to go get groceries and try to keep your milk fresh in the car on the way back. Boy, I was just so inspired. I encourage you all to watch the doc. It's only about 30 minutes long. And there are many, the, the Kristen's aren't the only story in it, but I was so touched by their IGA story that I just had to, you know, read a little bit more and find out more about them. So um, I will link that article about them in the show notes as well. But the president of the Independent Groceries Association said at their reopening celebration about Gwen and her family, he said, the Christens are a case study for what small business owners should be smart, hardworking, talented and charitable. They are doing it for the right reason and investing in their community. And like when you just when you watch the doc and you see this family and like Gwen has the most beautiful smile. I also think it's worth noting that Gwen is African American, which is a rarity in that community. 
And she's just stepped right out to be not just a community leader, but like a pillar on which the community is being built and rebuilt, Love it. basically. And I just, oh, I want you all to watch the doc, not only to learn more about what happened in Eastern Kentucky, what can still be done to help, but just to be inspired by this community that does take care of each other. Like you were talking about, Lori, this is just another example. It's not just Gwen being an entrepreneur here. It's her realizing that the right thing to do for her community is to rebuild and continue her business. And now that her son and his wife are in the business, I think that's, you know, proof that they are going to continue for years to come and that ISOM is going to have a grocery store and the communities surrounding it are going to not be in a food desert. So we're going it. That is a great story. I know. I want, I'm going to send you the link so you can watch the doc soon Please before do. the show yes. notes come out. Cause this is, we're recording. Um, it's going to be about two weeks till you guys hear this. So um, I want to make a short announcement before we say goodbye. And that is that I'm going to take about a one month break after this episode. And I'll be back right before Thanksgiving, probably. So you won't have to worry about getting through your holidays without depressing disaster stories. I know I wouldn't want to do that to you guys, but I have a little um, tendonitis in my hand and I just need to take a break from typing researching and just give myself a little more time to get well so don't worry disaster queen will be back she's just having a mini disaster right now that she needs to recuperate from so i promise i'll be back and uh bring even more horrible terrible stories so Lori, thank you so much for being with me today thank you for having me this has been fun just connecting with you um, in this way, my friend, this has been awesome. Thank you for bringing light to uh, what happened in Eastern Kentucky last year and um, just the continued visibility about the area. I know it's a place that's close to my heart, close to your heart. And um, it's not just about the flood. It's about just the overall situation that's there. So if you mm -hmm. guys feel inclined to help in any way, go ahead and and Google how you can help serve. Yeah, the I'll put some there. resources in the show notes too, because the Daily Yonder, the, the company that made the documentary, which the Center for Rural Strategies, I love that name. There's that word again, rural. <laughs> rural. They also have some great ways that you can give if you feel so inclined. So um, I think that would be great of us to invest in that community from which we hail, Lori. And I hope yep. that my listeners will want to too. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for hanging out with me and Lori and listening to our tomfoolery. And uh, I hope you'll come back and do it in a month. I'll put, I actually have a little bonus episode I'm going to put in the feed while I'm gone too, that I don't have to type anything out about or hurt myself to do. So you guys um, won't be missing me too, too bad, but um, don't go away. Please come back. All right, Lori, you stay safe and try not to be a disaster. I will try my best. Okay. Bye. Bye. The Disaster Queen podcast is written, researched, and produced by me, Jenny Rapson, the Disaster Queen. Original theme music and sound engineering by Robert Rapson. Editing is by Josh Rapson. You can get him for your editing needs at joshrapson.edits at gmail.com. Original podcast artwork is by Ken Clark. And disasterqueen.com website design is by Hello Chicky Design. Check her link in the show notes for all your site design needs. All show notes can be found at disasterqueen.com. Got an episode suggestion? Email me at disasterqueenpod at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow at disasterqueenpod on Instagram and at disasterqpod on Twitter.